It's Monday the 16th of March 2020. My name's Alex Elliott and you're listening to The Week in Iceland, the programme that asks what's been happening in Iceland this week, why it happened and why we should care. Now, this week's an unusual week. There's been basically one story in the news in Iceland and indeed the whole world. That is the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak. As a result, today's edition of The Week in Iceland is a special edition based solely on that subject. Uh, As Ruv is a key public service um, in Iceland, we are all, if possible, being instructed to work from home, myself included. As a result, we're not in the studio today and I have gone out with my microphone instead. Uh, Taking up two very interesting interviews. The the second one is with Dr. Magnus Gottfredsson, where we get a a medical insight, a much needed medical insight. Uh, But my first guest today is Elin Odni Sjöderdottir. Uh, so my first guest today is Elin Odni Sigurdrottir, a Reykjavik City Councillor for the Left Green Movement and also a social scientist. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Um, now, I've had you booked for a long time, so it's actually quite a good coincidence that you're on today because you do know a bit about what's going on uh, in the city of Reykjavik with the response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, what are some of the highlights? What's, what changes are happening uh, as a result of this? Well, the changes within the, the, the city of Reykjavik has been going on for a few weeks now. Even began even before the first um, um, incident of, of COVID was tested in Iceland, just to prepare. And of course, the biggest concern of, uh, for, for the city of Reykjavik is obviously quite many concerns since we are the largest workplace in Iceland. We have over 9,000 employees working for the city of Reykjavik. And we, we uh, provide a range of very important services to people, to the elderly, to disabled persons and to children. So um, the biggest concern now is to, to make the service work for people because people will still need these services and um, keep everybody safe while doing them. So that's, that's uh, the biggest plans that we are doing now, uh, especially in the welfare department is to, to ensure the safety of our workers and uh, the, the service users and to, to ensure that people that need services are going to continue getting them. That's a really good point. The municipalities in, in the country, of course, deal directly with the, with the vulnerable groups. We're talking about the elderly, the people with underlying health conditions that are the ones most at risk from the outbreak. Does it affect other services, the, the less essential services that the city is offering? Well, I, we don't see it now, but of course the, the, the ban now on, on gatherings for people over 100 and these two meter kind of restrictions is going to have some effect on our public swimming pools, our libraries and our museums. But they will be closed today while they're working out how they will do this. But our, our prime focus is to have as much open as possible and not close any services unless it's absolutely necessary. Uh, and a public health issue, so we, we still want to um, provide the, the the people of Reykjavik with the variety of services, services. But of course, all kind of events, like concert or big events, or our Borgalekuset, our city theatre has closed obviously because they can't do their shows anymore. So there's a lot of things going on. But I think a lot of uh, the quite response on how we uh, how we do this is going to come to light today because people are just have been working on it the whole weekend and uh, I think a lot of things will be ready to tomorrow. Mm-hmm. 
What sort of provision is in place for, for, for policing this um, this Samkomaban, this assembly um, restriction? Because they're not. I, I presume the police aren't going to be going in to check if there's a hundred people in or, or whatever. Is it about trusting people? Or yeah, I think at, at least in our services we don't have that many uh, many places where more than hundred people gather. Of course, the schools are are a concern and and some of the largest workplaces, and we don't really know if like a school or a workplace is a part of this gathering ban, or if it's just like where a range of different people are coming together. So uh, we will be working with, with, uh, with uh, uh, officials on that, how, to, how, how, how everything is organized. But I think, I think the, the, this is not like a police kind of state. And I think, I think this, the society is quite small. So I think we will a little bit police each other as well. And I think that uh, in the long run, Icelanders are quite, quite responsible and, and they will um, listen to these authorities. And of course, the, in, in shops and shopping centers and, and stuff like that, it's up to the, the, the business themselves to monitor this. And they all seem to be doing some precautions in how to make you stand in line and, and do stuff like that. So it will be interesting few days because this is the first time this this uh, law has been used in Iceland, so we have never done this in in our history. So I think everybody's just learning by doing these next couple of days. Mm. Some countries um, around us have been uh, going a lot further than Iceland has in these measures. Um, for example, not allowing any uh, gatherings. Italy, of course, has gone a lot further, but they've had to. Why has Iceland taken the route it has, politically speaking? I think the, the, the biggest maybe difference, and, and of course if you look at the Nordic countries, Iceland is maybe doing similar measures to Sweden and Finland, whilst Norway and Denmark are taking uh, kind of stricter uh, provisions, closing their borders and so on. And I think that uh, the political leadership in, in Iceland has been, and, and our Prime Minister, which is in my party, has been kind of uh, focused on listening to experts and, and the people that make plans in these fields and implement only actions that are deemed necessary. So unnecessary actions are not gonna help us in any way. So, and I think, uh, yeah, I think we will see how, how it will go. But I think, I mean, the situation can be totally different tomorrow. So making plans is quite difficult right now, which means that most of us will have a quite um, Busy summer and uh, autumn because all events are being like moved. Uh, the stuff that not has not been cancelled has been moved. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to follow. Uh, what sort of advice or evidence is that based on? Because we do, as you say, a lot of events have been moved to June, yeah. certainly June, July, August, yeah. even September. Yeah. Is that a timescale that we know is going to be realistic, or could it go even further? It it seems like that. They don't really know at this point, but uh, if 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 this this kind of curve that they are trying to make, uh, so that escalation will be slower than than if there will be no precautions, and they're talking about at least three months, I think. So maybe maybe we'll just cancel them in the autumn or move them again or whatever. But I think it's too too soon to say anything about that. But I think we are yeah. I think um, the kind of a laid-back attitude in, in Iceland, I don't know if you know the, the term, or we will kind of figure it out. 
I think that is uh, it's a good mix to have with, with, of course, making necessary precautions and, and listening to the authorities, but also have a little bit of a laid-back attitude about it. I think it will help the people that, that feel, I mean, people are uh, panicking and they are worried, and it's totally understandable that people feel that way in these times. Some of the people that comment on, on, on certainly the Facebook post of Ruhr English, they they seem to be thinking that uh, Iceland is not doing enough, quickly enough, and that we should just ban everything and shut everything to keep people safe. Why is that not a good idea? Well, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a doctor or a, a specialist in this area, but uh, this seems to be like a, the reason that you should keep people in vulnerable groups safe. So the rest of us are, if we, if we get the virus, we, we young, healthy people don't, don't get that sick. So, um, so this, it, it's not a reason to panic and, and shut everything down. So I think, yeah, if, if the experts think that this is the best decision, I think, I think the, the, the measures have been quite, you know, um, in relationship to, the, to the, the size of the issue. But of course, we have a lot of uh, confirmed cases in Iceland. And I think that because we have confirmed almost all the cases in Iceland, because we actually have a team that tracks everybody down and calls all their co-workers and family and so on. So I think the number of, of um, cases that have been confirmed by the authorities versus how spread the diseases is not like any, any measurement that we should, should take seriously. And that's interesting because decogenetics, Islandic health screeningar, has been doing random sampling mm -hmm. among people that mm -hmm. volunteered to go in. Mm -hmm. And they seem to have found that, haven't mm -hmm. they? About 1%, mm -hmm. and they, they, they're viewing that as a positive result. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I mean, I don't know uh, what you can rely on on these self-made samples, because people go there by their own free will, and, and maybe because they have some concern that they might have it, I don't know. Uh, so I, I think that 1% uh, doesn't sound, sound much, but I mean, in, in the population of Iceland, it's a few thousand people. So, so I mean, yeah, we're going to get quite quite many people staying homesick for the few, next few weeks and months. I think. I haven't researched specifically the the public testing that's going on there, um, but what are they what are they hoping to like? Are they, do they want everyone to go ideally, or are they looking for a certain percentage of people? Is it kind of a civic duty thing that yeah. you should volunteer for it, or only if you feel sick, or what? Do you know? Uh, I, I haven't followed it uh, that closely, but uh, but for now it's just like people are uh, welcome to come if they, if they have any concerns. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, uh, Decode wants to have like a... I mean, this can be a very interesting sample, and it's quite uh, quite a small uh, population, so it's quite easy to do do this research in such a small population. So maybe it will help them to find something out about it and and maybe work on a cure or something. So that that could be a, a good thing. And it is really easy to book. I know that because mm. I did so easily by accident. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to go, yeah, okay. but I went to I was in looking at the website and it said oh, the time's available. I clicked on the green button. And it said thank you, you're coming. Yeah, I was yeah. like oh okay, I will then. That's <laughs> <laughs> on Friday, so fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, speaking with your social sciences hat on, um, are you seeing people's behaviour changing around you, members of family and friends? Yeah, I think uh, I think like in everything else. Uh, 
people can divide into these groups, and, and this is just like the, 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 the any situation that is stressful. You have the people that that are highly concerned, watch all of all, all of the news and all of the social media and uh, all, all worst case scenarios, and and they don't feel uh, any better, so they they are quite anxious and panicked, and that's understandable. And and then we have the the group that is kind of just like. Um, let's be careful, but life goes on. And then we have the ones that are like, ah, oh, this is just a hoax and, and, and I'm not, not listening to any of this. <laughs> it's just like a common cold or whatever. So it's kind of the deniers of the whole situation. So it's quite interesting to see that uh, how people work under pressure. And, uh, and But mostly in Iceland, I think most of the people that I, at least in my kind of circle, is like in the middle, just yeah, don't panic, but just take all the necessary precautions and listen to the, the people that are the experts and maybe cancel your vacation to wherever you were going and reschedule it for the, another time and buy a little extra provisions and, yeah, and uh, wash your hands. <laughs> and don't buy a thousand toilet, toilet no, rolls. No, just, just one pack will do, yeah. Um, is there a, a genuine public health risk involved in these extreme reactions among people? Should ev would would the disease go away quicker if everybody was in that middle group? I know you can't force them, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just an interesting, interesting scenario to watch. But I think, yeah, I think uh, over worrying and having, you know, so uh, of course you need to think about your physical health, but. In your mental, of your mental health as well, and um, people that have issues in in the mental health area, I mean these are very troubling times. If you if you have a panic disorder or whatever, I mean this this is not a a good thing to to live through. So I think, I mean you should just check on your your friends and colleagues and family and and make a call to your grandma or whatever and check if she needs something in the store. I think just being like a good neighbor and, and friend is a is a good idea. Uh, just finally, uh, what's next for you? Does work continue? Are there council meetings and things going on? We have a meeting in city council tomorrow, and we have a we have a web meeting now in the afternoon to tell us how this is gonna uh, go go on. I don't know how they will do this because of these two meters restrictions and stuff like that. But both parliament parliament is in session, and uh, and most of the municipalities are are carrying on as usual. But uh, um, the minister for for um, for the municipality level, he has uh, um, he's passing a, or he's trying to pass a bill now that that can um, help us do meetings over um, the internet. I suppose that's not legal yet. No, no, no. We are not al uh, allowed to do that yet. We we need to be there in person, and and if we are sick, we just need to call in an alternate. So this has a quite a quite a formal kind of setting mm. at least for the the council meetings uh, and and uh, the the policy now is if the meeting is if the meeting can be an email then just send an email and all these kind of uh, unofficial meetings and and working groups and etc we are trying to move that um, to a kind of uh, distance kind of face thing so everything that we can do online we will do online so it's about minimizing risk, but not stopping it no, completely. No, working from home uh, instead of the office, uh, using technology to to uh, discuss things with people, and, and of course try to 
try to um, carry on. But uh, yeah, for a person that work, works, uh, the whole working day is mostly meeting and meeting people. This is a little bit different. So uh, we will see how it goes. It's week one now and under these new circumstances. And, and I only have two meetings booked this week, which is qu qu quite a, a smaller scale than, than usual when there can be around like maybe 30, 40 to 50 in one week. So yeah, we will see how it goes. Interesting times. And uh, I think f kind of fun for the first week or two, maybe um, wait and see month two. Mm. <laughs> well, uh, Elin Otnisilodotir, thank you very much for your time. No problem. My second guest today is professor with the University of Iceland Medical School, Dr. Magnus Gottfredsson. Uh, thank you for your time today. Pleasure to be here. Um, first of all, what is Iceland doing um, differently to certain other countries around us in, in response to the COVID-19 outbreak? Well, the responses have been somewhat variable across Europe uh, in many respects. Uh, Iceland being an island makes it a bit easier task to uh, monitor the traffic through the borders. And uh, as a result of that, uh, uh, a, a special effort was uh, initiated uh, pretty early on to uh, screen and quarantine patients or individuals that were returning from certain areas in Europe, mainly in northern Italy, the ski resorts there. and. Uh, and also occasional uh, spots in Austria. Mm -hmm. So um, this uh, effort uh, affected obviously quite a bit of travelers, but, uh, but they were put in quarantine uh, as a result of that. And we believe that uh, this has uh, slowed down the spread of the infection. Uh, subsequently, there have also been uh, other measures taken as you have seen in the media, such as the unprecedented decision last Friday uh, to uh, enact uh, the, the clause in our uh, infectious disease uh, uh, law uh, stipulating that it's uh, a possibility to close down certain public events, you know, um, reduce the number of crowd uh, gatherings and, and so forth. What do you say to people um that have been in touch with us at Ruv English saying, so this isn't going far enough. They say, well, 98 people, that's fine. I mean, why, why was the number set like that? And, and, and what, do you, what do the authorities hope to achieve with it? Well, I think the overarching goal uh, in a circumstance like this is to minimize the harm that uh, the public will face as a result of this epidemic. Um, in the absence of a, a vaccine uh, or, or effective therapy, um, it's, um, it's of paramount importance that uh, we uh, kind of adjust to the circumstances. It's not really possible to just close down the borders and just uh, close down the country for uh, you know, several months. It's uh, something that is not really tenable in uh, you know, the 21st century. But on the other hand, trying to trace people and use these measures to minimize the spread, slow down the spread, is a more uh, pragmatic approach. Um, and uh, as long as we are successful and not overwhelming the, uh, the system, the healthcare system, and, and not uh, 
allowing the uh, spread of the virus to affect the essential operations of other uh, functions in society, I think that's uh, the most realistic goal. In a perfect world, of course, we would uh, all wish that the problem would go away, but it doesn't. So this is the second best option in my m mind. We've heard a lot about slowing down the spread. Um, so does that mean that overall, the same number of people will presumably get the virus just over a longer period of time? Is that is that the way the authorities are looking at it? And if so, why does that matter? Why shouldn't we all get it tomorrow? Well, if we would allow this uh, crushing wave to just proceed and take its course, I think uh, it would uh, overwhelm the capacity of the healthcare system. It would uh, uh, create uh, problems not only in the healthcare system but uh, across society um, because it would be such a shock to uh, many other essential functions in a society. So uh, it's you know taking a, a one really uh, damaging uh, hit uh, versus trying to divide the overall impact in uh, smaller kind of doses, if you will. So that's the that's the overall theory, and there is data uh, from China, for example, to suggest that uh, the mortality can be lowered quite a bit if you use measures like these. Uh, for example, the mortality rate was much higher in Wuhan as opposed to other parts of China. And I believe that we're witnessing the same phenomenon in uh, other places in the world, such as in Washington State, in the US, and also in Italy. And that being that it was spreading uncontrolled for too long, or? Exactly. So you have a, a, a different uh, scenario in these three particular spots, possibly in Iran as well. So if you can manage the situation and try to respond to the spread, slow it down, it makes it, uh, uh, it, it seems to translate into a greater public health benefit, uh, uh, just looking at the mortality figures. Are there any particular examples of countries that seem to be dealing with it better than most? Yes, I mean, the prime examples would be um, uh, Singapore, uh, China, of course, they used uh, these so-called draconian measures to, to uh, slow the spread and, and contain the, uh, the epidemic within the borders of Hubei province. Uh, but others have followed lead and been uh, quite innovative in their approach, such as South Korea, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, and uh, New Zealand. Uh, there's, I, I believe, as of today, there are only seven or eight cases uh, in New Zealand. So they have been really tough uh, so far and been successful, and they have been using the approach taken by the uh, uh, Singapore uh, health authorities. Hypothetically, if, if New Zealand were to keep it down to six or seven cases overall, and then hopefully, you know, a few months' time, the world gets back to normal, are they at more risk of an outbreak later on, do you think? Yes. I mean, we, if we look at the history of epidemics, uh, and in particular, island nations are very interesting in that regard. And uh, uh, we know from history that uh, they become uh, vulnerable uh, if uh, they are not encountering certain infections for a long time. The whole uh, population becomes vulnerable uh, because there is no herd immunity within society. 
and uh, there are several examples of that in history, such as measles epidemics, uh, smallpox epidemics, measles epidemics here in Iceland that were uh, particularly devastating in the 19th century in the Faroe Islands. So these uh, settings are perfect examples to study the effects of rampant epidemics in non-immune populations. Uh, and uh, if the New Zealanders would manage to uh, contain uh, the epidemic and restrict it only to these few handful you know, of individuals that w are uh, diagnosed so far, uh, obviously the herd immunity will stay at close to zero. Uh, but in the meantime, we can hope that there will be some medical progress. Uh, there could be you know, development of a vaccine or uh, prophylactic therapeutics improved diagnostics. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they will, in the end, all have to face the same uh, problem that the rest of the world is, is facing. That's a very good point, because we've heard from certain countries we talk about herd immunity. Um, and is the figure for that somewhere between 60 and 70% of the population would have to have the disease for that to work? And is that what Iceland is looking for or looking at in the future? You know, the, the, all of this is quite empirical, um, and um, it's not something that you can control with uh, any type of accuracy. Uh, there are so many uh, variables, but ultimately the goal is to bring down the, uh, the r naught, this figure that describes the number of secondary cases on average that, are, uh, 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 that we're seeing in a, an epidemic, bring it down to less than one. And that means that the epidemic will die out. At the moment, it's somewhere close to 2.5 and even up to 3.5 in certain uh, settings. So, sorry, does, does R1, does that mean each infected person infects one other person? Is that what that means? Or? So, so R1 or R0 means that uh, you're, you're trying to describe the, num the average number of uh, individuals that are secondarily infected from an index case in a non-immune population. So if it's two, it means that on average uh, each p patient infects two others, and then it goes up from there in a, in a exponential fashion. So if the, this number is driven down to less than one, in the end it becomes a non-sustainable situation for the virus and it will eventually die out. So that's the overall goal, and the, uh, all the measures that are being taken be it medical interventions, economical interventions, social, uh, all are driving towards this goal to minimize contact between individuals and drive down this number to less than one. Looking two, three, maybe four months down the line, what sort of outcome is Iceland hoping for? What sort of figures are we looking at? Well, there are no hard and fast figures. I mean, basically, this is damage control. We're trying to minimize the uh, harm that it will do to society. And uh, in the end, I think uh, using the resources, these methods that we're uh, enacting, using them wisely, taking also to in into account that uh, we cannot uh, expect people to endure for, you know, unnecessarily long periods of time. So, but of course, all of us are hoping that uh, the situation will be improved in a couple of months time. But uh, uh, 
you know, only history will tell where we achieve that goal. What are the indications that people are looking for? I mean, when will the government and the health authorities be able to say, this is under control, we can get back to normal? What are the figures, what are the uh, situations are they looking for to be able to make that decision? Well, I can't speak for the government or not even, you know, not for the uh, official health authorities in, in the country. But, uh, but I think that as long as we can manage the situation and uh, gauge it by the, uh, the uh, amount of workload that it is creating for uh, our healthcare system, and uh, if we're holding uh, up, you know, uh, then um, we'll try to keep it that way as long as we can. I mean, I think that's going to be what guides us through this. What about tourism into Iceland? Uh, that isn't being restricted at the moment. I know a lot of people are self-restricting. A lot of people are cancelling their trips here, but not everybody. How much of a concern is that? Would you like to see the government cut back on, on, on flights, for example, to the country? Or is that not a primary concern? Well, I, I'm probably not the best person to ask about this. Uh, but as you point out, uh, you know, this can create a, 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 an ongoing problem if uh, there's a lot of patients that are importing the infection to the country and uh, the guidelines that we're issuing for our own citizens are to self-quarantine when they come from countries that are heavily affected and the list of those countries is being reviewed and, uh, and uh, expanded uh, on a daily basis so uh, the virus will behave uh, the same regardless of what the pass you know what type of passport you hold in your pocket so from a public health perspective, um, uh, those rules of self-quarantine, if you're coming from an exposed area or a high-risk area, should also apply to tourists, in my opinion. Uh, whether that is uh, uh, a practical approach, whether tourists will, would be willing to sit through a quarantine of 14 days, like they're uh, enacting in China, for example, because they now have changed their policy and they're uh, requiring all tourists that are entering China, or at least certain parts of China, to put in, to uh, face quarantine for 14 days that they have to pay for themselves. That, that, that's uh, something that we need to uh, discuss. Just finally, sort of on a, on a amusing of a point, uh, we look at like the plague, the Black Death and something. That was before we had the internet, before we had these mass ways of traveling around the world. And it spread much slower, obviously, as a result. Is there a positive to a disease spreading quickly and having less opportunity to mutate? Or Well, we don't really know that much about the biology and the behavior of this particular virus. We know for a fact that there are others other types of coronaviruses that are quite prevalent in the community and typically they're not associated with severe illness. The notable exceptions of course being the SARS epidemic of 2002 and MERS that emerged on the uh, Arabian Peninsula in 2012 but the other uh, coronaviruses that we uh, can uh, pick up using our uh, technology are usually just associated with mild flu or mild cold, I should say. Um, whether it would be beneficial to allow, uh, you know, an epidemic to run just fast through the population, it drives back uh, to the question that we just discussed uh, early on in the interview that, uh, 
you know, if, if it's a damaging uh, pathogen and very virulent one, uh, it's probably not a good idea because it will cause lasting problems within society. Um, and um, so I think that's a, a sound approach try to try to slow things down. But in this day and age, obviously, it doesn't really hold true because we're all so connected and the travel time around the globe is down to less than 24 hours. So it's uh, really tough to um, use different types of policies in such a global economy and a global society. Well, that's it. I think we're out of time there. Dr. Magnus Gotterisson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, that concludes both of the interviews in this week's special coronavirus edition of The Week in Iceland. The Week in Iceland will return next Monday, the 23rd of March, on roof.as forward slash English, Roof English on Facebook, through the Roof app, and your favourite podcast provider. We're going to finish today's show just on our normal theme tune because it doesn't really seem like a like a pop music kind of edition today. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't continue smiling, living life, and washing your hands regularly. Bye for now.